0: Hello and welcome to episode six of Catalyzing Radical Systemic Change. The topic of today's episode is redefining money, value and impact. And preparing the session, I think best is to start with a quote. The quote is from Abraham Lincoln. And it says the best way to predict the future is to create it. And my assumption is that much like Abraham Lincoln was living in crucial times um, with the abolition of slavery ahead, we're living in a time where it is blatantly obvious that the way the current economic paradigm works can't function for that much longer and instead of complaining about all the things that are going into the wrong direction, I feel very grateful to showcase today some very hands-on and concrete examples of how we can make sure that the way we rebuild money on what I would call the DNA level and how we deploy capital for A meaningful, regenerative future for the many generations um, ahead can be done. So without uh, further ado, Katie, I would like to hand over to you and yeah, briefly just sketch who you are and maybe also give us a tiny first of a glimpse actually why you started Open Future Coalition.
1: Sure. Thanks, Alistair. So uh, as Alistair mentioned, I'm the founder and CEO of Open Future Coalition, and I'll start kind of sparked by that quote that you shared uh, by sharing that from a very young age, I always saw some dissonance in how we were organized as a society. Um, The first persuasive essay that I wrote at I think 10 years old was on why the U.S. bipartisan political system should be abolished. (laughs) And I always I remember um, always thinking, well, if a meteor were headed towards the planet, you'd think we'd stop everything. We were doing to do something to fix it and yet I looked around and I just saw that everyone was kind of conducting business as usual and I remember how dissonant that felt from a very young age and that first kind of drew me towards an interest in public service and as a community organizer and I ultimately came through that work to recognize the power of written and visual communications and so really I began my career in public media uh, first branding and growing the reach of NPR and PBS programs. And then in 2013, I founded a design studio in New York called Incendiary. And we really came to focus on two things. One were some of the most complex multi-stakeholder rebrands in the impact space. And the other was kind of helping to make global advocacy tools more accessible. And through this work with, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of organizations on most continents, um, kind of from grassroots to major um, NGOs and nonprofits, I really was able to see what was working well within that space in terms of resourcing and funding and what wasn't. And then I would kind of moonlight in uh, venture studios, building out enterprise software and FinTech. And through that effort, I found myself one day in this very different kind of product meeting (laughs) and ended up leading the design of the first regulated institutional grade trading platform for digital assets. And through that work, I found myself interfacing directly with the regulators. And so I started to recognize that some of the regulatory and policy pieces Uh, some of these levers that I thought I needed to be pulling from the grassroots weren't as insurmountable as they seemed. And so I've spent the intervening years really kind of weaving together those two worlds and looking at, well, how can we kind of start to leverage these tools of economic and policy design to help support those that are on the grassroots, on the front lines doing this work? Um, And a, a quick glimpse into what we're up to with Open Future Coalition is really looking at how can we meet those who are doing where they are. I'll posit that, you know, when a lot of us are looking around, waving our arms saying, how are we possibly going to mobilize quickly enough to solve these global compounding crises? I would argue that so many of those solutions are already out there. They're just perpetually under-resourced. And so we've been looking, and ways I'll get into it in a bit, um, at at how we can well resource these efforts um, with what they need, when they need it, so that they can more effectively scale.
0: Thanks, um, Katie. Um, yeah, I think before really embarking on that um, emergent dialogue, I would like to hand it over to Joshua.
2: Thank you. Uh, it's lovely to be here this evening. Um, I am. We might be uh, quickly greeted by my daughter before she goes to bed. She's brushing her teeth, not. So I'll talk about my myself. Um, I was born in the U.S. and grew up in the U.S. Um, was raised by a single mom on welfare, uh, on the other side of the tracks. And so, when I was able to get out of the catch twenty-two that was uh, poverty and, and the uh, intergenerational poverty that that I grew up in, I had this profound feeling that I needed to contribute back into the world. And I found myself as an exchange student in Germany on a scholarship and and, and living in Ecuador and studying again in, 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 in many other parts of the world. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Morocco, finding like what was my one contribution that I would be able to make to really move the needle on making an impact. And it was through a career of working on development issues, international development issues as a diplomat in the Obama administration, um, where I found myself managing a very large social impact portfolio, looking at how can we take these large sums of money and get them to people and those organizations that need it the best, but not programmed necessarily from our perch high on, on the mountain, but really refocusing the power dynamics and the balance so that those who were the ultimate beneficiaries of of these funds were able to take part in co-creating this. And this idea of kind of rebalancing power, getting capital to those who need it was always something that was important for me, whether I was working in software development uh, or running uh, and building social enterprise incubators in Southeast Asia, for example. Uh, And so that's kind of my life's work now is looking at really the human element in all of this, because so often we forget about how we are as as how we show up, how our journeys that we've been through, how vulnerable we're able to be and use that vulnerability as a driving force. Same thing with how our organizations, their healths um, are oftentimes forgotten, whether it be in in grant making or in in venture capital, and it's not really um, used as a stepping stone to allow us to create more value in the work that we are doing. So we'll talk about Masawa my the organization that I, I work with uh, and founded in, a, in 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 a bit as well.
0: Thanks Joshua. Indy may you please intro yourself.
3: Um uh, see yes uh so my name's Indy Johar I uh, built uh, I suppose my journey has been I trained as an architect. Uh, got very quickly frustrated that architecture was largely reproducing old thoughts um stylistically kind of wrapped uh ended up working in urban policy and working with organizations like uh, demos in the uk and then ended up really starting to realize that the only way i i could contribute was to be more entrepreneurial so i ended up uh, building stuff like Bristol Urban Beach with Melissa Mean, which was, uh, we lost £35,000 building an urban beach, which is kind of fun, um, where, where we made a profit share agreement, never, ever, ever make profit share agreements with bars, always make revenue share agreements, just as a kind of simple, simple rule. <laughs> um, there is never any profit, but there's definitely loads of revenue um so uh all the way through to kind of uh ended up uh working with people like jonathan robinson to build the impact hub network um and did uh since about 2004 uh did a lot of that and then wrote the companion for the civic economy uh and then off the back of that was ended up building several impact hubs through social investment structures and um open desk open source furniture company and wiki house uh, which is open source housing so I ended up building lots of stuff and then about 2015 realized that most of what we were building were kind of the implied were built on the implied order of you know the problem is not housing the problem is land the the kind of illusion is housing and we make smaller and smaller housing and we sort of invite architects to make really really small housing because that'll solve the problem but actually it's much more structural about kind of our theories of land and our theory of how we own and ownership and other models and all the way through, I sort of we'd been experimenting with a lot of organizational forms, realizing that most of organizational forms were constructed on the theory of management, and management was an extension of kind of kingship. It was the kind of theory of control. So, how do you rebuild organization? It was very clear to me that in order to build new things in the world, you had to build the way you organize. Unless you did the two together, actually, you'd always fall back to the kind of reality of of control and kind of small caricature for that. And I'll wrap up. Uh, I worked five years in an architectural practice. And what was very clear was when we were, then we went from being about 11 people to about 70 people. When we were 11 people, we built um, handrails, we designed handrails with nodules on them, because tactile memory is one of the last memories to go. When we were 70, we were effectively designing colourful facades. So, and that was all a function of a the theory of control. What could you control in proximity? And what would you control when you were 70? So if you want to actually be able to scale complex capabilities, I think you have to change the nature of the organizations that you build and and thereby also change the effects. So that's really been since 2015, you know, been building, actually looking at some of the institutional infrastructures that sit behind the world that we make, that create the implied order of the world that we see around us and building that.
2: That's it.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm so curious how Katie would tie into what Indy was just saying, both from the way you want to organize Open Future Coalition, as well as build a different structure that then can truly radically prototype, experiments, new ways to deploy capital for projects with Open Future Coalition. And I'm yeah just curious how you how you tie that into what Indy was just saying.
1: I'd love to. Um, so I'd say the main way that we're addressing that is through figuring out how to not compromise fidelity at scale. Uh, to zoom out a little bit on what I mean by that kind of systemically is I would argue that, you know, we're all driven by story money is a story and then i I tend to say that one of the issues that we're currently find ourselves facing not only in our financial system but in our social system is that we've supported for too long the system of runaway scaling um of we've, we've essentially managed to scale words we've managed to scale messaging and we haven't necessarily effectively scaled communication or meaning Um, And I believe that that's the case uh, in our scaling of our projects and the scaling of kind of the abstraction of our financial instruments. And so part of the pattern that we're looking to enable is how can you actually return that context? How can we make our modes of exchange more contextual? And more particularly when we look at how we can scale these on the ground efforts that I alluded to earlier, we're really looking at if we can fully capture With greater transparency, these modes of community commerce and of trust. And you can templatize that. Um, For example, if we have a civic infrastructure um, project like like those that Indy mentioned, right now, if I build one building using a set of criteria, I have a set of standard operating procedures, I know what I'm measuring. Maybe there's particular training or, or guidelines around that. And then I go and scale that 2,000 times in 2,000 different cities, um, that might not be as the responsible thing to do. And so one very specific thing that we've been looking to address is, well, wait a second, I think that there's a way to scale something without compromising that fidelity. Because if we were to take that template and then package that into a template that is distributed And then you have folks in all these different municipalities that are adopting that template and they're able to take that off the shelf. But rather than being in their silos, they're actually capable of being in communities of practice with others that are also leveraging that same template. Then we have this possibility to benefit from one another's learnings and from one another's mistakes such that we're able to effectively continue to advance that template that sort of approach over time in a way where we also have the nuance of that information of exactly kind of whose dollars what hours are going into what efforts in service of kind of what measurable impact where those agreed upon standards can also kind of evolve forward in this more distributed fashion um, so i'm going to pull myself out <laughs> right now <laughs> before i get further into the weeds um, but that's one way that we've been looking at at scaling um as, as just a model for distributed learning forward and and kind of preservation of fidelity.
0: Let's let's stay just for a moment more to to be able to give the broader context for our audience. One thing that um, truly fascinates me about Open Future Coalition is to break up the silos. I mean, this is mentioned since, I don't know how many decades, but the problem is actually how can we provide an environment where truly people work together on projects and provide an environment for learning? So that's one piece, that's a learning piece. And the other one that I find really interesting is how can we break up the barriers in between quote unquote classical philanthropy classical nonprofit organizations and the various, let's say, for profit impact investing space. And I would like you to, yeah, just mention some some points.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll just speak a little bit to our, our timeline and how we're tackling each of these layers of this, you know, complex multi-sided ecosystem, as you mentioned. So first, our aim is really to serve those who are doing so that they can do more effectively. Um, Our our core initial aim has really been, how can we meet people where they are, whether they are an extremely grassroots effort or whether it's a complex multi-stakeholder or multi-agency collaboration? Um, We see really similar kind of barriers there. And the first that we see is really um, for effective collaboration and project management whether you're a mightily small organization that simply doesn't have access to those tools such as a simple CRM or whether you're one of these more complex collaborations, um, we are seeing these kind of silos, as you mentioned. And so our first aim in unblocking these silos is through kind of providing access to fairly straightforward kind of collaborative and project management tools. Um, But then what we've been layering in with that are, are two additional components. The second, is facilitating sectoral and cross-sectoral collaborations. Um, An example, we recently launched our our platform with 25 different organizations globally and we curated these by sector and we're facilitating sectoral collaborations. And so we've put together learning groups in areas like water and regenerative agriculture and community wellness, but we're also facilitating cross-sectoral weaving. We have a skills and knowledge-based marketplace where folks can find one another and kind of match and sort of uh, skills and, and best practice share uh, across these silos. So that over time, if you're again, kind of benefiting from one another's skills or learnings, our, our thinking is that you become kind of less reliant on this external capital over time. And then the last piece is we see a lot of time being taken up by kind of this bifurcation between the act of doing and the act of measuring. Think about how much time is spent in reporting or in grant writing in the philanthropy space in particular. And so what we've been doing is in stride of providing these project management tools, if we have that measure of again, whose dollars, what hours have gone into what efforts in service of what units of kind of community verified measurable impact. um, Then at any given time, we have a just in time view of kind of what resources can or should be applied where um, to kind of garner the greatest forward-looking impact. And so that's that's where we've started, um, is really that kind of capacity building within the impact space and providing that greater measurement. And then to quickly allude to those two other horizons, you mentioned, Alistair. Next on the philanthropy front, we, what we've been looking at is we see philanthropies that are, of course, supporting along kind of a, a, a shared um funding mandate, theory of change, they're often supporting organizations that have similar aims, but those organizations aren't necessarily working with one another. And so we've been really looking at how can we un-silo philanthropy uh, so that these organizations are working together other than oftentimes, again, funding different organizations to have <laughs> similar learnings, even to pay the same consultant you know, 10 times in parallel, how can we start to combine and, and kind of create greater co-learning and transparency? Um, So that as uh, each dollar kind of enters that system, we're able to do so with greater equity and transparency. And then the third horizon um, that you alluded to is that we think that the binary between philanthropy and impact investment is a false one. Uh, They're both investment. They just have different returns. Um, and in more, more particularly, um, we recognize that the cost of solving these complex crises that we've alluded to, you know, such as climate crisis alone, that, that cost is expected to far prece- uh, exceed our total <laughs> global philanthropic budget. Um, some, some projections saying triple our total global philanthropic budget year over year for the next decade. And so on the other side of that, we see these pension funds and family offices that have this social pressure to align their investments with um, with impact. Um, we see this sort of <laughs> crazed in the direction of, of ESG, which uh, frankly oftentimes um, results in, in more green flashing. But But in short, we, we see these investors who are expressing this desire to invest in impact. And oftentimes their pain point is they're saying, well, I just can't find enough high quality impact to invest in. And so in short, what we're looking to do is if we, Again, going back to this project management piece, if we already have those measurements from the beginning, from the generation of that impact of, again, what auditable efforts went in in service of what units of verified impact, that's precisely the ledger that's required to support the emergence of not only kind of new ecosystem services that are emerging beyond the carbon credit, we're looking at water credits and so forth, um, but also these new forms of kind of green bonds, social bonds and other financial products that are wanting to emerge.
0: Hallelujah. Thanks, Katie. Um, I consciously want to hand over to Joshua because I know he will bring again a different perspective, a different lens on how how to look uh, at
2: capital deployed. Sure. So I gave a bit of a, of a background of kind of where I've I've been and, and what I've seen and, and the trouble I've been able to cause, good trouble. Um, and so now what we're working on and have been working on for the last number of years is setting up the first mental wellness impact fund, one that doesn't just deploy capital, it nurtures capital. So I think a lot of the existential issues that we have as a society have to do with the fact that we're humans because we're not good at listening or allowing um whether nature to help guide us on what we actively should be doing because you know we have um, the technology of, of a god currently, but we have the evolution that isn't actually so progressed as hum- as human species. Um, and if you look at a lot of the climate change for example, one major reason is because of our human needs that we' are not able to fulfill at some fundamental level. The need to feel safe and belong uh, and we are able to cover that up by consuming or traveling too much or not being uh, connected with each other as 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 an, an, a species or with other species on this planet or with uh, earth herself and we see oftentimes that it's them that lack of human factor that is completely ignored because it's it, soft skills are hard to measure um and but we know that if we're really going to change the nature of capital, and in our case, getting capital to those startup f- founders specifically who are able to catalyze mental wellness as fast as possible so that we don't have depression being the number one cause of disability worldwide, increasing loneliness, um, dementia, substance abuse issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, not only because of our, and, and in part um, due to COVID, but which also these issues existed well b- before COVID, We're not going to be able to really attack um, these uh, issues um, together as as humanity. And so through a nurture capital approach, we look at weaving the people side of the equation, the individuals in the organization, the organizational culture, alongside the purpose. We've talked a lot, we've already, you know, impact is a big word that we're using uh, on this chat specifically. And more and more people are getting excited, especially in traditional financial system socioeconomic systems, they want to see more impact and more purpose. But really being able to, to Katie's point, having measurable and accountable aspects that are woven very closely with the the human elements is something that we feel will drive actually the the profit. It's not even about driving profit in the traditional sense, but it's about increasing the ability for sustainability and eventually regeneration to take place. And so this nurture capital approach that we've um designed a framework it isn't rocket science, it just isn't really happening in at least the traditional financial world very much. It really looks at how helping other funds, family offices, institutional investors, accelerators, already from the very beginning increase our ability to maximize social impact, founder well-being, and organizational health. Um, and it doesn't just have to be those startups like in our fund, which are focused on mental wellness. I think it's applicable. Uh, and, and more uh, a humane, and compassionate way of uh, driving and and using utilizing capital for both extended social and financial returns.
0: Thanks, both Joshua and Katie, for that first layer of information to make it possible to grasp what we are what you are working on. Indy, I'm curious where you would riff of either one of the two organizations mentioned or maybe even even both
3: um yeah <laughs> I, I suppose um yeah no, I, I obviously agree with everything that's been said and I think I suppose the way we've been looking at it having gone through two cycles is um several things I suppose. We, I'm going to just run our hypothesis through just in a kind of really cold way. This is what, what happened. So we came to the conclusion that impact investment didn't work for two reasons. One, the funds were too small. 20 million, 30 million portfolio size is just not sizable enough. And two, which is perhaps even more fundamental, actually impact organizations create spillovers of value which are currently unvalued in the system. And externalities that, that are generated by existing products are unpriced in the system. So it's a double double whammy. The positive aren't priced in the system, and the externalities for your benchmark aren't priced in the system. And a good example of that is, you know we've done the work on the High Line, for example, the High Line in New York. If you looked at the spillover value of the High Line in New York, you would have paid for the whole High Line in 10 months. Had you priced, have you just got 10 percent of the land value uplift attributable to the Highline? just 10%. So 90% was privatized, just 10%. So what that meant for us was that actually there was a two edged problem. One, the capital structures were too small and two, um, you know, the positive spill evidence weren't captured. And then on the other side, if you look at the S&P 100, I think the stats are that if you priced, if they had to price social environmental costs in, 78% of the S&P 100 is no longer viable. So actually our product domain that exists around us is all bullshit. It doesn't exist. It's actually just a, it's a net. It's a, you know, when people talk about um, a degrowing, we are currently in degrowth. Every product that you see is a degrowth product. It effectively is generating vast amounts of externalities already in excess of the positive, positive effects that it generates. So there's a real question on that. Now, what that led us to believe is that when you take it, take that problem, that so, and then the third thing was actually, if you wanted to look at that social social value, was largely constructed through spillover effects. So, for example, the, you know, I spent five years uh, working in India and working with some really brilliant people in India. We, we that were doing total village investment. What was fascinating about that was they did did not take a product centric view. They did not take a cent- uh, uh, sort of sector centric view they were looking at the effects of irrigation on sanitation, on health, on education, to livelihoods, to access to markets. So they took a system centric view of that investment portfolio. And that system centric view was actually a completely different profile investment models. Now, in order to manifest some of this stuff, we then decided like, okay, if we want to start to think about this, we need to start to think about firstly, a scale of investment that works, And we didn't think ventures were were where you would go. We said infrastructure is where you go. So infrastructure uh, is a really good class of investment because it can absorb hundreds of millions. So the quantum of capital structuring is right. Secondly, actually, it's a product which can create vast spillover effects if you design infrastructure in the right way. And then so that was kind of a conceptual frame. I'm just doing it in a really uh, this took a long time and lots of failures, <laughs> nothing smooth about this at all. Retrospectively it looks way smoother. Um, then, um, uh, then we identified over time was that trees, for example, urban canopies, if you reframe them as infrastructure, they are currently priced as liabilities. And there was huge amounts of positive spillover values, cooling effects, uh, sustainable urban drainage. It, 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 air pollution and various other things, effects. If you looked at, at trees in an urban context as a piece of infrastructure, you could flip the whole model because there's hidden value which is unpriced in the system. And that dealt with the pricing of that model. So then what we've been looking at is landscape level financing solutions. So, Fees is one, the other one is whole city retrofit. Another one is mental health, collective mental health of a city. So how do you value the collective mental health of a city? And all of these assets are fundamentally different types of infrastructure. So one is novel infrastructures like trees, nature. Another one is entangled benefits of of whole city retrofit. And then, and this is sorry about the tongue twistiness, but the med collective mental health for me, for us is an intangible emergent asset. It's an emergent asset because the function of other pieces of investment, which allow this asset to emerge in society, but it has massive Um, societal value um, attributions. So we've then been so that was kind of underlying assets, asset class. And that allowed us to then start to think about new classes of instruments that could finance that story. And then new practices of governance, because the architecture of these infrastructures is such that they rely on multiple inputs and multiple outcomes that your theory of governance can no longer be done through a public private model. Has to be a many-to-many governance model so that's kind of been really we've been re-engineering our theory of governance and, and, and almost trying to see these infrastructures as citizens so it's a kind of a sort of in a way as we've seen self-sovereign the rise of self-sovereign rivers or self-earning rivers we've been starting to think of these infrastructures as kind of these new self-sovereign entities that allows us to have many-to-many engagements and actually not biased towards one actor or another actor and value steal in that way and that's really been our um, a slightly boring journey and obviously you know at a landscape level when you start to look at this there's a whole next generation complexity where you start to look at what are the liabilities the pooling of liabilities in the landscape and then looking at asset asset matching against those pools of liabilities so you do you know so asset liability matching at a landscape level, which I think creates a new class of uh, social or impact investing at that infrastructure scale. And that's really been some of the work and all of this stuff is really only possible if you fundamentally adopt a digitally integrated approach. So you can't do most of this stuff unless you have spatial finance mechanisms in terms of being able to see what's going on um, using um, geospatial tagging, using uh, citizen science, uh, as well as kind of internet of sensors type frameworks, because you have to be able to model the additionalities and those frameworks around this stuff in integrated ways and be able to verify the models in those ways. So I think, and I, all, all the way goes to contracting infrastructures and financing mechanisms, which I could boringly get into, but wanna avoid that. But I think that's where where we've been and that's the journey we've taken, I suppose, to, to get here. And nothing smooth about it at all. Lots and lots and lots of mistakes. I really,
0: if I had a talking stick, I would literally put it into the middle of the four of us and really maybe consciously pause, even if it's just for half a minute, and then sense where the background you're coming from and what you're working on might evolve into an impulse because I now have the feeling we have kind of the infrastructure layer the mental health layer. We have three different horizons. And I'm really curious because a journey of a thousand miles starts always with the first step and then the next step and then the next step of how we you respectively in your organization and with your project want to weave the complexity needed ahead
3: into tangible steps So that's it. That, that was
0: too long of a pause for Alistair, right? Um, I'm super curious, um, Joshua, on what you are building and on the bigger piece of intangible um,
2: infrastructure. Sure. I think for if you look at really not ignoring or pricing in to the extent that you can, the human factor. And for us, we define that as individual's ability or the human's ability to flourish inside of the organization or group, what they're spending most of their time on. And then also human's ability to flourish because of the organization, because of the product services approaches and factoring those two in, in terms of of pricing in as a mechanism for evaluating, whether it be the infrastructure, whether it be the um, both land, landscape, uh, building, urban space design, um, political systems, um, products and services, things that we probably spend way too much money or my children want me to buy and I acquiesce. Um, I, 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 these are the things that are coming up for me in terms of being able to price in the, the, human, the effect of, of, of what we're talking about a little bit on the human elements, both inside and, and, and outside the human factor. Um, Which is something we're emerging in our discussions, especially on the backs of ESG, which is now becoming all the rage, a great thing, and also troublesome at the same time. Being able to put across that human lens, uh, that human factor lens and saying, well, actually, this is a a different way. Now, what we're, and this is um, uh, being very honest and and transparent, is having troubles with, is figuring out that, that, that those me- mechanisms for accounting for that internal, which I think we, we, we have pretty much understood uh, human factor and then the external human factor. Um, but I think taking this into account for everything that we're working on on the various projects, you know, it's been quite surprising for us just in the last number of months, the number of, of, of funds and impact related organizations, and accelerators who know that they need to have differentiate their products and services in this old traditional system by bringing in well-being, organizational health, purpose, tying all of those things together, Um, that there is a a movement here. And it's not that it's us versus them. uh, It's that we have the ability to just start doing this, start start acting upon this to show the, the power that it can have.
0: Katie, your thoughts?
1: <laughs> a lot of wheels turning here. Let's see. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to weave kind of what Indy and and Joshua just shared. So one one thing that's coming up for me here is kind of our role as a bridge between these horizons and kind of how do we design for the wholeness that's required because if we overly orient, to the current necessity when we're trying to design for that third horizon, then we're going to necessarily suboptimize. Right. And so one piece that comes up uh, a lot for me, and that I know Indy speaks to this often, um, is how do we, and, and we've been talking a little bit around unpriced assets here. So I'm going to put into the center this concept of how do we price the value of failure? Um, because I think we too often don't provide this base to fund our mistakes, and sometimes our mistakes are the most valuable. Um, so that's, that's one piece that I'm curious about, about how that'll best enter the conversation. Um, but then a little bit more tactically, um, as we look at kind of this transition between right now, You know, how do we kind of start to fund and support things in the right direction that can maybe meet the needs of current stakeholders as we're then designing for this third horizon, which I imagine will be a lot more self-governed, a lot more distributed. Um, Some of the very practical instruments that we've been exploring is, you know, I think that towards the beginning um, yes, we might be using far more practical means where we start to measure and capture some of these unpriced assets. And maybe we you know, create secondary markets for digital securities. And we, there's, there's already you know, compliant ways, ways to do that. But then where we're headed, I'm going to quickly allude to what we've been conceptualizing in, in terms of creating value that's based on what we really value as uh, people and planet and try to weave in some of this social component. Um, so I've been kind of seeing two mediums of exchange as required uh, for the emergence of this new paradigm. Uh, one is a kind of a, a new form of community commerce. And I think that'll look like something that is diversified and, and sovereign where, where you can kind of, um, you know, be, maybe it'll resemble kind of, you know, metric currencies, right? It's minted on the fly. It's high velocity. It might discourage hoarding all these different mechanics. Um, and then the on the other side of that is, is the interactivity of this more metric commerce with an impact-based commerce. Um, and one piece I'm really curious, particularly having Joshua in this conversation for, is the balance between the quantitative and the qualitative that I think we have a responsibility to hold and how we measure that impact-based commerce. Um, and so as we bring it back to some very um, practical applications like project management and, and measurement, I think we need to be really careful not to fall back into these easy kind of activity-based uh, measurement paradigms where you know a global NGO swoops in and says, I did, therefore I was useful. And here's the measurement of my output. Um, and instead kind of turning this this onus back on members of the community. And I think one way in which we can do that is creating a third layer. So I mentioned community commerce the sort of impact-based commerce, so the measurement of these outcomes. And then I think there's this third kind of social validation layer that can act as a multiplier across those two that is a necessary um, bridge. And one way we've been exploring that is, again, rather than having that NGO swoop in and say, I did, therefore I was useful. Let's say you were serving meals. Okay, well, let's start to survey community members so that they can reflect that back and say I received and it was useful to me and this was my experience. Um, and so we can start to bring in community engagement directly in this act of impact validation. Another example, if we're doing something that's perhaps a little bit more, um, you know, scientifically focused, let's say we're, we're working on agroforestry pro- projects, right? And, and someone's planted X number of trees. Um, well, we won't include that on the ledger until a community member who's been trained in tree planting verification has gone through and verified that those trees have been planted. Um, There are a number of ways we can achieve that. Um, But what I'm really interested in is this sort of orthogonal vector of um, kind of community verification and participation within the emergence of this new form of commerce. And I think that there are a lot of ways that we can then kind of orchestrate in stride of kind of going uh, uh, along this bridge, um, kind of local new forms of kind of resilience for community members and, and kind of upskilling and participation through citizen science through project based learning um, in a way that will have incredible social multipliers that then will have then the capacity to start to capture and, and roll into the emergence of this commerce.
0: Everybody feel free to unmute. I really want to allow more of the flow of the conversation.
2: Let me quickly do your point about quantification versus qualification uh, is crucial and it's not we're not using the traditional um, logical frameworks uh, that have been used. Uh, in the, especially for example, you're speaking a lot about the, the development sector, um, international development, where an external entity comes in and does X, upskills a group of people and and and, and gets uh, something for it. Uh, but you're flipping that paradigm so that the the outcomes, the activities, the the inputs the, um, are also really co-created and owned, and agency is is a key currency in this. Not, Currency we were talking about in terms of individuals um, have, having the agency that they need to uh, and want to because you know there I w- I was a peace corps volunteer for two years in Morocco I was twenty three had no idea what I was doing uh, I drank a lot of tea and I, I made a lot of jokes um, um, uh, and I couldn't have ever provided anything to these people coming from the United States um, and, and really learned firsthand that it's they, they have everything you know that that they need um, and. Um, they're also probably, on average, a lot happier than than, than most uh, people in the West because of a number of different dynamics. Something I also hope we're able to do soon is really understand the secondary and tertiary effects of the investments that we're doing. If we're providing meals, or if an organization is providing meals, not only how how many bellies are filled, but how many children the next day are able to go to school. How many, you know, if if that persists, what what is the overall? Uh, uh, change in um, overall human wellness and, and, and people's ability to thrive uh, because of uh, not just a one interaction because it's not about being able to trace it back um, to that one uh, instance but the whole uh, cornucopia of interactions that then contribute on a kind of matrix three by three by three or n by n by n um, scheme.
3: So um, let me be let me be the person with the hand grenade then. Does any of any of any of this actually take us home? What is actually? Well, I would say that if you talk about radical systems change, um, which was kind of the title, I don't think we're anywhere close. I think, you know, like, I suppose my, you know, in a way, I suppose I've just been sitting here going, if I was the audience and Alistair told me, we're going to be talking about radical systems change. I'm not sure this is radical system change. And I'm not sure this gets us anywhere close. Because like I said, I think if you look at climate change effects, if you look at any of the big things, we're nowhere close. We're we're nowhere close, we can best be, we might plant some trees, we might cover a couple of cities, uh, we might do some of this change, but actually, we're nowhere close, if you look at the scale of what we're facing. So I mean, like, I suppose, how do we change every organisation to have the the high quality mental health context that it needs to have and is that a function of mental health or is it a function of really fundamentally going past the theory of ceo management models actually it's about changing i don't know the pay differentials in how we pay like i mean all of that stuff right so at dm for example our pay structure is based not on paying people for the work they do but trying to pay people to do the to try to pay people so they're free to do the work they want to do. The pay differential is two to one between the highest paid employee and the lowest paid employee. So I I like, I mean, I I don't know, I suppose if we're going to, you know, we know that real estate, so most organizations are optimizing towards real estate. So that's what they do. They, they, you know, the numbers are how efficiently are people packed into their buildings? We know that was a rubbish number and COVID killed it nicely. We know that actually real estate is about 10% of the cost of an organization, whereas people are about 60 to 65% of the value of an organization. Yet we massively under, under invest in them. We know people are actually not assets. Every CEO stands up and says, people are the assets. They're not, they're liabilities. and uh, They sit on the liability side of the balance sheet. We don't, we don't have a framework to be able to invest in people. Every investment in human beings is a sunk cost. There's no additionality to the balance sheet. Like I, I don't know. I'm. I suppose I'm just picking up, picking up the mantle of Alistair here. Going, yeah, come on, man. What does this really all mean?
0: T- thanks, uh, Indy. So I'm dialing in from Mexico. So, so I, so I love, I love the spices that you, you you put into the into the masala here. Um, the way that I, or why I did invite the three of you is my gut feeling is the more complex a system the less we can predict uh, a tipping point in mm. in like both directions and i think certainly all of us are committed to making a difference right most of the audience as well sure. and i think what is needed now is that we build prototypes and experiments that compromise the least possible to prototype, I would say something that 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 still is emergent, but that has the innocence, the beauty the richness, the honesty, the transparency, I would say these are all values that I would call are baked into, I would use the word sacredness of an architecture where truly, if not all, then the vast majority of all stakeholders in the ecosystem benefit. Truly, much like in a garden or in a natural system. So I don't want to overly stretch the metaphor from the garden because I think it's a retro-romantic metaphor because we won't get rid of technology. Even more so, we need to amalgamate the... Already existing and emergent technology to mimic, I think, entanglement, reciprocity, reciprocity, and the collective wisdom and intelligence that is usually just inherent in the such as, for example, you know, in, the, in different parts of the garden. So anyhow, um, to hand it over as a as a question, I know, I'm not so mm. good at asking mm. precise questions over, but. Do you do, what do you do Katie? What do you do, Indy, hmm. to make sure you try to compromise the sure. least possible, given the framework that sometimes we need to compromise on in the given um, like sure. context of working.
1: Yeah,
2: I feel like I'm deeply grateful for for that, Alistair, also for the grenade that Indy threw. Um, because all that we're doing are, are testing a series of hypotheses. Um, and my hope is that with this that, uh, hypothesis that we're specifically working on, that the ripple effect uh, and that the knock-on effects are so great that you can no longer ignore, for example, the human factor in our specific case, uh, because you're, you're going to lose out on, a, on a shit ton of money. And that's unfortunately what, what is still driving people and, and still will be uh, for, for, for some time, unfortunately. Um, and I think that in the, your your discussions at the beginning, where you, you were failing a whole bunch, you were validating your hypotheses, or you, or you were invalidating your hypotheses, and then you we, we'll move moved to the next thing. Um, and I don't know where that tipping point is, where that fulcrum is, um, to be able to drive things. Um, and I and I figure once they do happen, it will um, it will be stumbled upon, uh, not out of, uh, out of out of luck out of serendipity, out of having t- tried a number of things, lots of different groups of people coming together and going apart and coming together and doing things on all the dimensions of the world. Um, but I guess for me, it's not, I don't have this 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 yearning that we have to fucking change everything because it's all broken. We just have to change enough. Now that end just has to be, I don't know what that number is, um, uh, to be able to get things over the over the line.
3: I mean, I, I suppose the reason why I sort of throw in the grenade is I'm often in a space where I'm questioning, like, where is it? And I'm not in any way saying whether I, I put DM in the same spot, right? I, I put all the work that we do in the same spot. Uh, is it enough? Is it right? Is it the right position? And the reason why I ask that question hmm, is, and I suppose, you know, I really want to sort of go back to radical systems change. If you want to talk about radical systems change, we have to, we have to transform our theory of how much a human is valued, right? So the reality is if you, I I can't remember the exact number, but I think a a human by insurance companies is valued at something between about 20 to 30,000 pounds, that sort of figure, that's the price of a life. Um, And why I say that is that actually, if you look at it from a different point of view, from a kind of Toby Ord, uh, sort of existential risk and existential hope point of view, you'd say that every one of us is a king and a queen of 13.5 30.8 billion years of evolution to get to every one of us. It took that many options and iterations to get to every one of us. And then if you look at the infinite near infinite options that every one of us creates into the future, you would say that Joshua, the kind of infinite options that you will create into the future, it could mean that you, your descendants, were the pivotal thing that transformed our relationship in the universe. It's quite, it's optionally very plausible. Right? Um, what that means is that every human is relatively infinite value if you look at it through a future future sense. And why I bring that case is that I think I would argue that we are trapped in a paradigm which actually misunderstand value at a structural level and has a kind of misunderstanding of us as well in that structural level. And I think radical system change requires us to go that deep, to go away from a theory of object orientation to entanglement orientation, to go away from a the theory of control to learning orientation, to move from an idea of individualism to space-time kind of planetary engagement, the value of human being near infinite as opposed to being near, near negligible. And when you move any of these shifts, they change everything around us. They change the value of everything. They change the engagement that we have with each other. We, we talk to each other in a different way. We behave with each other a different way. Our relationship of, of, of contract is not that of extraction, but of care. So it changes, it's a, it's a leap of conception that transforms everything. And I suppose when I sort of, as I entered into this conversation, I think that was where I was, my mind space went. That if, I, if we were going to, from my perspective, if we wanted to respect this idea of the radical systems change, then the radicality lies in some deep codes. And those deep codes are manifesting, right? The reason why humans are, are a liability on the balance sheet It's because we don't, we see them as an overhead, as opposed to actually a sort of uh, uh, somebody which is investable in any way. It's just a cost overhead. And that manifests in everything, because we're constantly in a relationship where the return on capital is now much higher than the return on labor. So we're seeing a, you know, we're in the Engels pause period where return on labor is flatlined. And return on capital is accelerating, and that divergence is manifesting in inequality for the wealthy in a really structural sense. So I suppose I, I I kind of sat here and I just like, and that manifests in everything, right for me. This is you know, can you price can you price the environmental services of a tree? Should you, Okay, you know should we be pricing? Should there be gift economies? Should there be thought through in a fundamentally different way? I don't know. that's where my mind was going. Kind of patiently in the background of going all right then let's take your challenge alistair
1: yeah i'm going to bring us a little bit further into the mystery (laughs) kind of building off of that um if we kind of further bend that arc of scale a little bit i think we're really pointing to untangling this false belief that as we scale exponentially we lose intimacy and i'm going to argue that being radical is actually extremely intimate Um, and as we think about the design principles that are required in the types of prototypes that we're each working on, um, you know, that question of, are we building a world or are we building an atom? I think it's the same thing. Um, I think that even the smallest prototype that we build must contain at least a whisper of the wholeness of what needs to emerge or else we are compromising, um, or else we're kind of replicating that, that unwholeness that we're looking to revolutionize kind of past um and so this isn't necessarily an answer more of a continuation of your question but um i'd, I'd push that you know I, when, when we ask this question of scale are we building a prototype are we revolutionizing society i think every prototype is an entire society that they're the same thing
0: i, I feel are like I, so. I, I feel like um, just because at times and again in our conversation encounter a very complex language i will give an example of um, a founder of a company in berlin that i know that might be watching or might be listening consecutively and she very consciously is employing single mothers so the vast majority of the people who are working for her are half-time single mothers, so meaning mothers that need to care about one or multiple children and don't even can share part time the children with, uh, let's say, another partner. This fragment of society is like highly vulnerable, but like the founder, a woman herself, who found herself in the same situation with two children and who set up um, a company, really basically wanted to showcase that it is possible that you can run a company in the given surrounding by following that model. And um, I met her, I think it's not 24 years or something like that, It's not a, it's not a newly founded company. And uh, it was very, I just wanted to showcase that example that I think it's a pretty radical example, not as radical as in the abstract sense as you were throwing the hand grenade. But what I wanted to say is that I think in each generation we have our challenges and we need to bake into I don't know why I use that word suddenly into the sacredness because I really think there's an universal structure that means that actually the possibility of regenerative business models is already out there. Yes, we need to reinvent it and bake into the institutional infrastructure and deploy the capital in ways that it can work for the future generations, but I truly think it's already there and i really just wanted to throw that piece of information uh into the into the middle that yeah maybe maybe you joshua i don't know maybe also you actually i would find it interesting maybe how would you nurture the capital in some of the startups i don't know if you're allowed to mention some of the examples and how
2: So I missed the second phrase of that, and if i have missed that too, but I can probably infer of what you were asking. Um, Thank you for uh, bringing a very concrete example of someone who's bucking the trends and and having uh, their passion and vision around creating solutions also for someone in their own similar situation. Um, I think looking at that, time horizon of, of one and two when we're looking at transforming or working within the existing capital system, how we nurture the capital is really co-creating with founders and organizations what they feel that needs to happen with their in, in terms of their journeys of being able to be both held accountable to the purpose, to the impact that they're wanting to drive into the 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 human elements of the organizations that they're they're running Uh, and so it's a series nurture capital plan that is um, a number of different modalities but it's every interaction is bespoke every engagement is bespoke uh, because it has to be there's not a um, one-size-fits-all methodology Um, and it's taking from a lot of the learnings of 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 the team we've um, um, spent most of our careers working in emerging markets um, in various types of organizations uh, and really taking that learning that we're just here to accompany others. Uh, and oftentimes we have voice, oftentimes um, uh, be the ones on the, on the front saying, no, it's we can't actually uh, put a premium on the people of the organization, the purpose of the, or, of the organization in order to get to the uh, sustainable or, or, or profitability. No, we actually want to be seated, seated with other traditional investors, whether they be impact or not, and, and be asking about the, the human factor in these contexts, um, or being ones to say, no, it's actually okay if we invest or would like to invest in various forms of organizations, regardless of if it's a nonprofit, a for-profit, steward-owned or not. It's about getting capital to really drive impact forward. Um, that specific hey, question? So just,
3: I'll uh, I'll step in uh, for Alistair. Uh, channel so him. I, Can you, can you channel him? Yeah, exactly. I'll channel him. Mm-hmm. I really can't actually, it's too good. Um, but I, but I, I suppose you're deploying capital, right? Um, it, into organizations. Um, how have you changed the kind of model of capital allocation in mm-hmm. a sense to build a different theory of portfolio? Have you found that by investing in organizations which are human first, actually you get a different type of portfolio, i.e. your portfolio is more resilient, um, your default rates are lower, you're looking for higher learning functions. You're not looking for 100 Xs, but you're looking for 10 Xs. So you're, you know, I'm just kind of curious if you 2 X. Yeah, uh, so 2 Xs across a wider, wider. So if you go to 2 X, you get, you have to get 50% of your portfolio to give back. So you've got to be at 60 to 70% of your portfolio should be retained, so your heroin component as like, I tend to call venture capital more heroin capital so it has an accelerated growth have you structured yes. the fund so it's 20-year returns right so is it 2020 yeah. cycle what like just to get into oh. some of the details really
2: so sure, certainly so so it's um uh, we're very as an emerging fund we're still in the very early stages of of both making our first investments and, and finishing also the fundraising process but the idea is that it's a typical 10 plus 2 um, model and t- 10 years uh, of investing for a two years return um, and because the focus of the fund is on founders who are working to catalyze mental wellness, those are ones that are more receptive to take doing the inner journeys that they need uh, and building the, the resilient organizations and focusing more on, on the culture. Um, the intended return is 2X. we think it'll be much higher because of the the specific aspects that you mentioned, uh, lower default rates, uh, mediocre organizations being able to perform better because they can simply talk to each other and and get over their own human elements uh, that that prevent a lot of, that cause a lot of the the breakdowns in in, in startups. And so that's, um, but but again, this is a hypothesis. The entire first fund is is looking at this hypothesis of does nurturing capital actually lead to these higher returns? Um, And then as as I mentioned, and kind of out of um, a bit unexpectedly, other f- f- funds funders becoming interested also in this human element. And, and now we're starting to deploy our services to those uh, as well. Uh, yeah.
3: And, and the the other thing I suppose, I mean, I not want to admire massively, but significantly, I think. Mark and Andresen's sort of fund structuring is quite unique, as I see sure. it. So I, I think people often underestimate, I think he constructs the future in a quite a literal way, which is that his fund structuring is to invest, to learn about the future, and yeah. then follow on and invest to create that future. Absolutely. So it's actually very much a le- it's very much a learning oriented model. Mm-hmm. And and he prizes, as far as I understand, a model where effectively, if a, even if, if a founder fails, actually mm-hmm. the, the failure is not a failure. It's the mm-hmm. price of discovery at the whole fund structuring yeah, level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so so, are you structuring a kind of, um, kind of a learning failure model built into your pricing?
2: Uh, Most... So
3: that actually you expect 50% or 100% failure or 60% failure in the first half of the fund and then you're going mm-hmm. for a higher return in the later half. Like, Are you, are you looking at those structures?
2: Uh, precisely. We're actually trying to figure out are there mechanisms and innovations that we can do with this so that if uh, and when uh, companies do fail, that in um, subsequent ventures that the founders that do, because we're, we're betting on them as humans, especially at the very beginning, that we're able to follow on in their next um, uh, ventures, whatever those may be. And it could be a second fund. Um, something also that we're looking at is the solidarity aspect. Uh, and it's not to say when when a private wealth manager comes knocking at your door after you've exited, um, uh, you sh- congratulations for the for the hard work that you've, uh, you've done and the system has rewarded you for, for that. But when those bankers do come at your door, can we have now something in place that says actually thirty percent, let's say, of my 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 earnings, my my hard work, is actually going to a future Masawa or whatever entity? Doesn't matter that it's ours, uh, liquidity fund, so that we can kind of circulate and create solidarity amongst all of the funders. Um, those yeah. are some other elements. So
3: that proof, like a pooling a pooling model, pooled uh, across the. Uh for all the founders or the kind of uh, operators?
2: Yeah, a share of, of the, actually, uh, yes. Yes, and so that's what we're looking at. Um, is it possible for everyone to have part of the, 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 the performance fee, the, the carry, um, so that we are a bit more bound together and it's not this competitive nature. Um, and those are some of the things that we want to be able to uh, pilot in this first fund, ex- expand. You know, if we look at what's happening in decentralized uh, autonomous organizations, uh, whether it be blockchain or not, there's also a lot of additionality that we can build to get us away from this one, like that that the, 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 the entire portfolio is riding on the success of one company. Uh, as an impact fund, that doesn't actually get us to the numbers of lives change that we need to see.
3: And so it's coming to, to you, Kate, uh, Caitlin. Like a, a venture kind of investment model like that, has a huge amount of outcome capability. So I wondered, I wondered how a philanthropic organization could come in on the back end of that, and actually all pre buy outcomes uh, in a way at a societal level, and thereby create a revenue stream for the venture. Is there a new way for philanthropy to to loop in and partner in this way?
1: Yeah, well, that directly folds into the comment I was going to have on, on what Joshua was sharing, which is I think a lot of this comes down to a matter of de-risking. I know that that into you on the real estate side have been looking at, you know, if, if you can actually limit the, the risk of downside, then you can offer, you know, a lower upside return and, and have people sort of buy into that. Um, likewise, I, I see uh, kind of folding in, public and philanthropic capital um, as a way of de-risking that investment capital. Um, and I want to actually add in a, a few additional layers of de-risking that I'm hearing here, which is if you're pricing the intangibles, right? You're starting to re- we're, re- we're all talking about different ways that we're reducing uncertainty. If you increase sort of transparency, if you increase sort of collaboration and sort of cohorting <laughs> and, and education, um, these are all ways of kind of lowering risk of, of while also, yeah, there are other vectors of uncertainty that we're bringing in here as well because we do want to encourage those mistakes. Um, but I, I would—I I just kind of wanted to raise that sort of risk dimension. Uh, another dimension that we've been looking at is as we view this through a truly multi-capital lens. I think that you know financial capital is one of many stakeholders, and so if we start to kind of even that circle, then some people are bringing are bringing capital some people are bringing kind of skills knowledge there are all these other forms of resources that we're bringing to the table and if we start just sort of shifting to view that a little bit differently then i think we can have some really valuable insights there as then we move towards governing differently and so i would also say that more participatory more liquid forms of governance are a key component of this paradigm that i think we're all touching into and then to more directly answer uh your question indy um Again, this is where we get into like there there comes a point where philanthropy feels very semantic. um because if you're getting down to the point of measuring the returns for for whether it's a philanthropic donation or whether it's an investment, ultimately, what you want to be measuring on the project level is the same thing like the same, and that's something that we've been running into is it almost starts once you get really granular, it starts to feel almost absurdist because. Um, you're saying, well, what, how do we want to package this? Are we packaging this as a report to philanthropists to show, you know, this is, or are we packaging it up and calling it a digital security and then selling it over here? It's the same measurement and oh, can like, can we double count that? Like how do, so we're actually starting to get into some really practical (laughs) almost frustrations around that because I think we're running head on into some of the absurdity of these binaries.
3: But, it, but it's really important, I, I suppose, what I was quite enjoying in that conversation was, you know, if you can marry the enlightened and care centric venture capital model with effectively, say, a, you know, a collective outcome buying capacity in some fashion, um, and you, you were to do that in a, in a geography, you would not only create the new organisations and value creators of the forward, you would also be able to drive integrated effects and outcomes at a population Mm -hmm. level so i i i'm increasingly interested in how these kind of ecosystem structures come together because i think they're going to be critical to allow for you know distribute because it's not about centralized innovation we need decentralized innovation and we also need new ways of collectively looking at population level liabilities and all the stuff that you've been doing by reframing philanthropy itself Mm -hmm. because when these two things come together we create really powerful ecosystems which i think it would be really uh, significant um, I'm just conscious of time, um, and uh, and also, but maybe uh, just give the last word to you, Joshua and, and Caitlin, and uh, and then we can wrap up. Maybe Joshua, any thoughts from Certainly.
2: your side? Yeah, I think I think this this last area that we're looking at is is something that's very, very exciting. Um, for for me personally, um, having worked across various different capital buckets and seeing that those buckets are really at the end of the day, it doesn't, it doesn't they're insignificant, and using the different incentives and, and, and mechanisms, whether it be having a philanthropist contribute to a fund like ours, if depending on outcomes in year three and five, that would, they're able to give an additional top up of twenty percent of their portfolio for follow-on, which is where we're going to make it the most impact, both financially and socially, um, and, and those types of mechanisms, which. I haven't seen before. Um, uh, hopefully, they'll be coming out. But how do we kind of not just structure them, but also um, actively have what I call a process historian alongside, as a a, a a a contemporaneous anthropologist, being able to say, well, what what was really happening when these things, when these discussions were going on, when the decisions were being made, uh, and 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 as not just looking at this one example that I gave, but all of these different new ways or or ways that we are repackaging or evolving. So that we have a better understanding of really what the inputs are and, and kind of the feelings and emotions are, are needed happening in the discussions in the rooms. Uh, I think that's something I'd love to be able to see work on, etc. So I think this is a great conversation to continue going forward.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. And I, I, I would say that the outcome buying doesn't have to be just through the investment side, but sure. can be through the revenue side, Not
1: which also
3: sense. means is a pre it's a precursor for uh it's a precursor for public and quasi public agents to start to understand that the the work that your startups and organizations are doing are mitigating their liabilities in new ways. So I think there's a really interesting ecosystem response. Caitlin, uh you have the last word my dear friend.
1: I think part of what we're all building here is a new circulatory system in a way. Right. Um, we're looking for ways to transmit, whether it is financial capital, whether it's knowledge, um, whether um, it's measurement. I, I think we're all kind of seeking to prototype this model where we have enough complexity, and enough sort of Um, diversification of our prototypes that we can learn from them. But we always need for that information to make its way kind of back to the center (laughs) to kind of sense, make and pulse back out to apply again. And I think if we can find a way at the smallest scale to decide around shared language, I think this does come down to kind of language and and metadata. If we can come to a set of shared agreements um, around those inputs and then we can go out and scale and deploy, but always ensure we have the mechanisms in place for that learning to come back to the center. I think that's what's required um, for us to reach the type of scale that we're talking about here.
3: Yeah, couldn't couldn't have said it better myself. Um, my friends, uh, on behalf of Alistair, I don't look as good as him, but, uh, uh, but I uh, would say uh, thank you for your patience. Uh, thank you for kind of, um, working with the disruption itself. Um, but I think it was kind of, we got to a meaningful moment as a result of that, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And a meaningful kind of a kind of idea of what constellations of capital are required and circulations of capital are required to make kind of a, mm-hmm. a real deep dent in, uh, dent in the kind of context that we're living in. So uh, thank you, Joshua. Thank you, Caitlin. And on thank behalf you. of Alistair, thank you. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> Cheers, friends. Thank
2: you. <laughs>
3: That's travels. I think I'm just going to leave. Until we there. see each other soon. Okay. All right. Everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye.